providing timely, relevant content to providers who care for children. Welcome to Pediatrics in Practice, presented by Children's Mercy Kansas City. Here's Dr. Michael Smith. And so our topic today is opioid use and pain management. My guest is Dr. Dan Milspaugh. Dr. Milspaugh is the director of the Comprehensive Pain Management Program at Children's Mercy and also the director of the Opioid Stewardship Program at Children's Mercy as well. Dr. Milspaugh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Michael. Good morning. Well, let's let's start off with this. I, I, obviously, opioid abuse, opioid concerns are definitely all over the media, all over medical practice. So let's just start first with, you know, as an expert, Dr. Milspaugh, what's your take on the current opioid-related public health emergency? Well, uh, and I, I'm glad you stated it that way because usually people will say crisis or epidemic, but public health emergency is, in fact, the right terminology. Um, and it, it's it's a very valid concern, and all of the attention is warranted, although I will say it doesn't capture a lot of the nuances uh, of this problem. And I think there's a, uh, a fear that an overly simplified view of it may end up leading to potential solutions that that don't fully address the concern. And actually, I'm reminded of an H.L. Mencken quote, which goes something like this, for every complex problem, there's an answer that's clear, simple, and wrong. And I think we got to be really <laughs> careful that we don't fall into that trap, um, yeah. that we overcorrect and therefore have a pendulum swing back so far that we don't don't use these very powerful tools to their best advantage because we have a new uh, fear of them, uh, a new opioidophobia, if you will. Uh, yeah. Having having said that, there are some some big concerns, and the U.S. is unique in that uh, certainly until most recently we've used about 80% of the world's opioids, uh, which is uh, you know, obviously something that is eye-catching and, and doesn't really correlate with an increase in pain intensity in the U.S. When you look at other developed countries, they have pain intensities that are uh, or incidences that are very similar to ours, but don't use the same amount of opioids. And a lot of this stems back to um, a social movement that was driven by compassion back in the 90s and early 2000s, and even codified uh, as pain as the fifth vital sign, uh, and and a lot of scoring of pain uh, promulgated by the American Pain Society, and then codified by pain standards in the Joint Commission, uh, first of which were in 2001. So that had the effect of making a lot of expectation shaping possible so that we viewed pain as something that really ideally should not be present and that we should use any means necessary, even our most powerful tools, to eliminate that in all aspects of pain, not just in cancer pain or palliative care or post-surgical pain, but in more typical pains that a lot of us have, uh, say, for example, back pain, which roughly 70% of the American population will have at some point in their life, and using opioids for that condition is, is frankly misguided and isn't likely to actually help with the problem, but it does put more opioids out into the public and increases the supply. And if you were to say what the correlation is between prescribing and the rash of, of increased opioid or, or drug poisoning deaths, it would be essentially that, that we have, with our prescribing patterns um, that are born out of, of reasonable compassion for patients that are suffering pain, we've increased the supply of opioids in the general population, some of which get diverted and misused, 
And that is at least part of the problem. So it's not causative per se, but it is correlative and it is facilitatory. And if you look a little bit deeper at the stats around uh, drug deaths, most recent stats were from 2016, where about 64,000 people died of drug overdose. That's not all opioids, though. Uh, Increases in cocaine and methamphetamine deaths are also going up. So this is not really an opioid problem exclusively. And fentanyl and heroin deaths are going up. Uh, And of course, there's been a lot of attention to um, the essentially poor quality control around uh, illicit drugs where heroin is laced with fentanyl and and potent uh, opioid analogs that that are problematic. Now, prescription opioid deaths are roughly level or potentially up a little bit too, but not as much as heroin and fentanyl. And opioid prescribing is actually going down as those deaths from other drugs continue to go up. So I think we have to be careful not to overly simplify this. Moreover, those deaths are often associated with a great deal of polypharmacy, as we would call it. There's many other drugs involved, often four or five or six additional drugs in an overdose, benzodiazepines like Valium, for example, or Ativan or Xanax, or um, alcohol and and a number of other things, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, marijuana, often used in, in, in addition to the opioid. So it's it's more complex. Uh, there's more nuance to it than is often presented in the, the popular media. And if you look at the context of opioid use, in the medical context, there's actually a really good study in JAMA Pediatrics uh, uh, from this year that showed that the cumulative incidence of long-term opioid therapy over a three-year period is only about three in a thousand for all comers, all prescriptions uh, of a 1.2 million prescription database. Wow. Now, Embedded in that data is also information about what increases the risk of misuse or long-term use of opioids, which is a little bit conflated with with, uh, long-term pain problems. Uh, So things like depression, anxiety, other substance use disorders like alcohol use disorder, even things like ADHD increase the risk or susceptibility to addiction. There's a number of genetic factors and what we would call epigenetic factors, uh, stress and life life events, so adverse childhood events or experiences over time, toxic stress, adolescence in and of itself. And then, again, a big overlap between mental health conditions and substance use disorder. And even when you look at long-term opioid therapy in adults for chronic non-cancer pain, the really strictly uh, diagnosed opioid use disorder is probably less than 10%. There may be aberrant behaviors upwards of a quarter of those patients. Uh, but at least 75%, even at the most conservative estimates, that aren't having an opioid use disorder. So I think we have to be really careful and not be, not de- not develop a a uh, stance of being anti-opioid nor pro-opioid, but rather pro-patient. This is about our patients. How do we treat our patients? What are the proper indications for these medications, which are very potent and very strong? And what's the right amount to give somebody after say, dental work, if at all, or after uh, surgery uh, or after a broken broken femur, for example. How yeah. much should people get? Is there a way to do it without opioids? And I think that kind of creativity is something that we're, we're really spearheading at Children's Mercy here. How do we evaluate our prescribing patterns, and how do we take that, those, that knowledge that we have and try to, to help our patients in a better way and try to streamline that process and be more tailored? Uh, and even you know more uh, patient focused, 
So that's what our opioid stewardship program is primarily about. And, you know, of course, there's a, a compliance element to, to it when how we actually meet Joint Commission requirements and, and relative, relevant state uh, statutes and regulations. Uh, but in, in large part, our opioid stewardship program is about how do we manage opioid prescribing responsibly. So that's a long-winded answer. Right. I know. That was great, though. And you said a couple of things that I want to go back and review a little bit with you. First off, you know, the idea that there should be no pain. Um, you know, I, I was a, a medical student in the mid nineties and I remember being taught that, that there, that, that we should pain causes worsening outcomes, et cetera. How do you actually feel about that? And, and, and is that, if that's, if that's the mentality, no pain, um, is that leading maybe to some regulatory and agency responses that aren't appropriate? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And certainly, um, I was taught that, that exact, uh, viewpoint, too, which is pain is something to be avoided, uh, not the least of which is because of uh, the physiologic perturbations that can occur from that or the stress response uh, associated with pain that diminishes healing. And uh, but the other aspect of it is the suffering component. And so that's where the, the motivation primarily came from and then subsequently justified by the, the known physiologic responses to this. So we, we actually in our country have two parallel crises, if you will, uh, a pain crisis, so pain epidemic. And I, I, I use those terms knowing they're incorrect, but it's what okay. tends to be used in our society for big problems related to, to medicine. So we have a lot of people who have chronic pain. We also have a lot of people who misuse substances and particularly opioids. And the they don't. Those two problems don't coexist well because we do have an appropriate desire to diminish pain as much as reasonably possible. And I think that nuance about what's reasonably possible and and how to balance the risks and benefits of the tools we have to reduce pain uh, against the the real risks of having severe pain. Uh, we, we have trouble balancing those things, and and yeah. I think. The overly simplified view of it is we should have no pain. And if you think about the the unintended consequence of of measuring pain continuously and or frequently asking people, is your pain, you know, on a zero to ten scale, you know, six, seven, eight, what is it? Uh, and the the implied correct answer is zero. I mean, just asking about it in that way, one promotes people's focus on it. It makes yeah. it uh, higher in their salience, uh, so their salience network starts to to, to uh, trigger pretty substantially when you ask somebody about pain. Well, I wasn't in pain until you asked me about it, and now of course I am. Um, right. And really trying to objectify something which is inherently subjective. So I refer to that as pseudo objectification of of this phenomenon by measuring it in what you know. It leads people to believe that one, there's more science behind it than there is and two, that it's more objective than it actually is, and that the right answer should be zero. So we push push in a way that actually leads us to take more risks than we might otherwise uh, take. And the back pain is a great example of that, which is, you know, if 70% of adults have back pain, I think it's unrealistic to expect that people won't have back pain. <laughs> uh, and to think that we need to do everything possible to get rid of every right, possible uh, incidence of back pain is in fact misguided and I think driving some of this uh, 
this problem and actually driving our 80% worldwide utilization of opioids. Uh, this is something of a unique American phenomenon where we don't have right. very much tolerance for dis- discontent or um, lack of comfort. Yeah. And, I, and that's not to chastise Americans. It's just something that, that we seem to be focused on. I, I can't be uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, no, something and I, I, must I, be I, done about I, that's this. Very and common. that actually gets yes, to that's... another nuance of this, which is the interplay between um, external locus of control and internal lo- locus of control. And the way our medical system is organized, it's, doctor, what are you going to do for me? Instead of, how do I partner with you in a way that helps you do the best for you as a patient? And what can I do to support you in that journey? Um, if we know that a lot of things like back pain, for example, are treated just as well by increased physical activity and physical therapy and some cognitive behavioral strategies that re, re, uh, stress, uh, refocus on, on, on changing the way we view it from a non-catastrophic to a, a normal part of existence, those people do as well uh, as mm, any of the other medications yeah. we can throw at it. Yeah. Uh, so that's a change. That's an expectation change about what we what we're shooting for. Right. Uh, so well, I, I let think me ask our you expectations this, are in the process of being changed right now, um, but it's hard. Okay. Well, let me ask you this, Doctor Millspaw. You 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 had yeah. said something earlier as well. Um, so the perception, the perception, right, in the media with lay people is that opioid. Uh, prescribe uh, prescriptions are going up. We're prescribing it more and more and more. But you actually said something that was interesting that is actually decreasing. Are you worried yeah, that that been, perception though is going to lead to some again some regulatory re- further regulatory restrictions on on opioid use? Yes, I I certainly do, and and it actually has already. Um, and uh, fortunately, actually, towards the end of the month, I'll be heading off to Jefferson City to talk to our leaders in, in government there to, to try to make sure we have this nuanced understanding of it so we don't overshoot. Uh, because we already are restricting the amount that can be prescribed, the duration that can be prescribed. And some of that may be appropriate, but I think when we come up with these relatively rigid um, regulations and we remove the clinical decision-making power from the providers and invested into regulatory, either government or non-governmental agencies, uh, we, we one, uh, leave some of our decision-making power on the table to our own detriment and the detriment of our patients, but we also allow for these uh, overly restrictive and rigid and, and black-and-white rule-making processes to, to carry on in a way that may actually lead to the next crisis 20 years from now. You know, so this yeah. came out of a well-meaning regulatory process, and we we uh, adopted it so thoroughly that now we have the unintended consequences of that. And I worry that we will will restrict the use of these medications so severely that we will have the next problem 15, 20 years down the line. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Milspa, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Milspa is the director of the Comprehensive Pain Management Program and also the stewardship programs at Children's Mercy Kansas City. Dr. Milspa, obviously you're doing very important work, and I want to thank you for coming on this show. You're listening to Pediatrics in Practice with Children's Mercy Kansas City. For more information, you can go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.